My grandmother prays for me. I know this because there's not a single visit that I have with her that does not end without her telling me at least once, usually multiple times, that she is praying for me. In fact, yesterday we got to spend a little bit of time with her and I told her I was going to say this. And she chose and did remind me in that moment. Yes, Jeremy, I, I do pray for you. I pray for you every Sunday and indeed every day. I pray for you. And that, this is incredibly encouraging. And, and you know that feeling too. Yes. What a joy it is that there is someone who is praying to the king of the universe on your behalf. Asking that he would help you. That he would give you wisdom and discernment. That he would keep you in his love. That he would help you to resist sin. That he would lead you in obedience to him. It's one of the most comforting things that we can hear. A very sincere, I'm praying for you. Our text this morning, it serves as a bookend for a section that begin back, began back in uh, chapter 4. There we found the nation of Israel gathered at Ebenezer and the Philistines gathered at Aphek. The two had come out to battle against one another and the first skirmish had not gone well for Israel at all. 4,000 Israelite soldiers were dead. So Israel was in a bad way. But now we also need to remember the context for chapter 4 that's very important for us. Because in chapter 3, we learned that the Lord had raised up Samuel as a prophet in Israel. Remember that at that time, the word of the Lord was rare in Israel. This was an act of God's judgment against his faithless people. But in the prophetic ministry of Samuel, the word of God had come to the people of God once again. So... What they ought to have done is consulted with Samuel. They should have asked him, Samuel, pray for the Lord for us. Help us understand from the Lord what we ought to do in this moment. But they attempted to use the Lord instead. Remember, they treated the ark of God like it was a, like it was a lucky charm, a four-leaf clover plated in gold. They thought, hey, this is the thing that represents the place where the Lord is especially, is especially present with us. So let's bring out the ark, because when we bring it out, God's going to have to tag along. And when he gets out here on the battlefield, oh boy, he's going to whoop up on those Philistines and we're all going to have a Merry Christmas. It's not what happened. The Israelites were routed. And the ark of God was captured. The wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the very ones who had trotted the ark down from Shiloh to the battlefield, they died, as did their hapless father Eli when he learned the news, falling over and breaking his neck under the weight of his own body. It was a dark day, a dark day in Israel indeed. But then in chapters 5 and 6, the Philistines, they learned the same hard lesson the Lord, He is God, and He is no one's servant. 
They assume that Dagon, their god, has won a great victory, and so they bring the Ark of God into Dagon's temple as a trophy. This results in Dagon getting knocked to the ground twice, bowed before the Ark of God, bowing to God himself, and having his head cut off, a sign that he had been conquered. That wasn't enough. Plagues began to break out throughout Philistia. And so the Philistines are like, all right, let's start a game of Ark Hot Potato. The Lord had not been conquered, and the Philistines, over the course of seven months, come to realize this. And they come to the conclusion, we've got to get rid of the Ark, or we're all going to wind up dead. And so they send it back to Israel. And you'll remember from last week, the ark comes riding in on a cart led by two milk cows to a town, Beth Shemesh, that was a town primarily made up of Levites, who of all the people in Israel, upon receiving something holy, ought to know what to do with it. And they act foolishly, they act presumptuously. First, they offer up a sacrifice before the Lord uh, that was uh, opposed to how the Lord had actually instructed them to offer up sacrifices to him. And then they treat the ark with irreverence. They look in it. They don't treat it as they ought. They act presumptuously. And so the Lord strikes 70 of them dead for it. And so they begin their own game of ark potato. And they send the ark to a town in Israel that was primarily made up of Gentiles. And that's where things stand as we pick up the narrative this morning. So if you will... Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 2. It says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone 
and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word preserved for us that we may know you, the one true God. Holy and mighty who is no man's servant. You are the one true God, and to you alone belongs all rule, all dominion, all majesty. And yet you are a God who is one of great grace and mercy. It is by virtue of your grace and mercy that we may be here now, reading your word together, considering what it says and means and matters. God, we are dependent upon you to bring it home for us, to cause us to see how it applies to our lives and for that to then actually be worked out in our lives. Please do that, Lord. We're dependent on you, and we beg of you to do it. Amen. So there are three sections in the text today that in ways in which it is broken out. And the first is this, is that Samuel leads Israel in repentance. So we learn in verse 2 that quite some time has passed from verse 1. We're now 20 years removed from the events of chapters 4 through 6. If you consider that there was seven years in which the or seven months in which the ark was in Philistia from chapter 4 till we get to the end of chapter 6, we're actually pushing close to, to 21 years since we began this tale in chapter 4. And in the 20 years since the ark came to Kiriath Jerim, it, it has not moved. And it's actually going to stay in that place until David, in 2 Samuel 6, um, decides to bring the ark down to Jerusalem, which if you're you're familiar with that account, you know that David makes a very similar error uh, as the men of Beth Shemesh did in how they seek to move the ark. They do not move the ark in accordance with uh, the way the Lord has prescribed. They are to treat it. It ends up beginning to fall off of this cart in which they're carrying it. Uh, Uzziah reaches out to touch it, and he dies. And so the ark has a layover, if you will, uh, for, for three months before it actually finishes coming from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem, but that's for down the road. In our text this morning, the situation with the ark, it, it has not changed at all, but we see that there is something that is changing with the people. We read that they lamented after God. They were longing for Him. And that's evident because of how Samuel speaks to them in verse 3. And now if when we read verse 3, your first thought was, wait a minute, Samuel, where's, where's he been? That's a good question. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here let's consider what he says to them and what it tells us about their longing, their lamenting the Lord. He says to them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. This reveals two things for us. First, 
that their desires for the Lord were being rekindled. Like a fire, you think of a campfire, that seemingly has gone out. It's dark, and it seems that there is nothing left to burn, and then a little wisp of wind blows through, and it ignites an ember, and a few more embers catch, and it starts to flare back up. We see that this is happening in Israel with their desires for the Lord. It is beginning to flare back up. Second, they recognized that they had sinned against the Lord. And that's a, an important distinction. It was not, woe is us, we have sinned. It is, woe is us, we have sinned against God Almighty, who is holy, who rules and reigns. We have sinned against the Lord. Lament doesn't just carry the, con- the connotation of longing, but it also carries the connotation of, of sorrow. They had been faithless. They were grieved that they had sinned and turned from God. But as I said, we also note that Samuel has reappeared in the narrative. We haven't heard a peep about or from Samuel since chapter 3. We're not told where he's been or what he's been doing, but there are some clues for us in the text that I think help us know where he's been and what he's been doing, and I think that those things, they help us better understand what is happening in Israel. We know from chapter 3, verse 20, that all Israel knew that he had been established as a prophet of God. Remember what it told us. It said that the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. And that was important because that was the test by which we would know if a prophet is from God or not. If the prophet said, I am speaking on behalf of God and his words did not come to pass, the Lord said, you don't have to fear him because his words, my words, are not in his mouth. But if a prophet spoke, thus saith the Lord, and that thing came to pass, the people were to know, oh, The Lord has raised up a prophet and put his word in his mouth. That was known about Samuel, that the word of God was in his mouth and on his tongue. We also know from chapter 4, verse 1, that the word of Samuel had come to all Israel. It had gone out to all of Israel. And from our own text, verse 15, that he judged Israel all the days of his life. And so we know what Samuel has been doing. He has been making the word of God known to the people. Israel's lamenting after the Lord is a response to the ministry of his word through Samuel. I want you to remember what should have happened to Israel for their faithlessness, for their refusal to submit to the covenant obligations, to honor it and to obey the Lord in light of it. The penalty for breaking the covenant was to be kicked out of the land. The Lord says that in Deuteronomy 28, that if you refuse to worship and serve me, if you do not honor this covenant, if you do not submit to it, submit to me and honor this covenant, I will send you back to Egypt. But instead, as Tom showed us a couple of weeks ago, it was the Lord who went into exile for them. He has disciplined them severely. Yes, that is true. But he has allowed them to remain in the land. And graciously, over the past 20 years, through his word, 
He has been bringing them to repentance. And this is important for us because it reminds us of how it is that God always works to bring his people to repentance, to worship and serve him. It is by his word. By his word, he calls and forms a people for himself. We see this first at Sinai, when the Lord brings Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage to the Egyptians. He brings them to the mountain where he gives to them the ten words, the ten commandments. He gives them the law that they may know how they were to live as his covenant people in the place that he was bringing them. God's people living in God's place under God's rule, under his word, knowing by his word how to live in humble submission to him as their Lord. But this is true in the New Testament too. We see this in Christ, who is the very word of God made flesh, who through his death for sins and resurrection from the dead is forming a people for himself, who are led by the word of God. For it is the word of God that corrects, It is the word of God that rebukes. It is the word of God that trains in righteousness. We, God's people, are led by the word to know and serve him. It is by his word that he has always worked to conform his people into his likeness, to make him known through their submission to him as king. And so it is here. It's what we find Samuel doing in chapter 7. He's instructing the nation in true repentance, according to the word of God. And when he speaks to them, you can almost hear him saying, can't you? You feel bad about your sins, and that's good. But it's not enough to just feel bad. You have work to do. And so he directs them to put away their foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, Baal was the boss if you will, of all the Canaanite gods. He was believed to be the storm god who, who sustained fertility for crops, for animals, and for people. Ashtaroth was a fertility goddess. I recognize there are little ears in the room, so we won't delve into precisely what that meant in terms of their worship, but the key word for us there is fertility. Worship of these gods would blend lust and liturgy. And in that we see the way that sin often works. It offers the moon. Come, come. Fulfill the desires of your heart. Experience all the joy, all the happiness, all the satisfaction that your heart desires. But then all it leaves in its wake is guilt, shame, and brokenness. Here Israel has experienced the fruit of their sins. The Lord repeatedly put them under the thumb of some neighboring nation that he raised up against them because of their faithlessness. That is the cycle of the judges. We see it all through the book of Judges. They would sin. The Lord would raise up an adversary through which his discipline would come upon them. He would raise up a savior for them, a judge who would deliver them when they would cry out to him. Rinse, recycle, repeat as they spiral further down into sin. And so here we find them sitting in the guilt and the shame 
that their sins had left them with. But understand, just feeling guilty for sin is not the same as repentance. Hear me again. Feeling bad about sin means nothing if it does not lead to concrete action. Repentance requires that you actually do something about your sins. They must be put away. That's what, is, what Samuel leads Israel to do. If you are returning to the Lord, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Then, then He will deliver you from the Philistines. And the people respond in faith. They do all that Samuel instructs them to do, and they turn to serve the Lord. This helps us to see that there is a difference between confession and repentance. They go together, but they are different. They're like two sides of, of the same, same coin. Confession is the recognition and the admitting of sin. Admitting that I have sinned, I have transgressed against God Almighty. And true biblical confession will lead to repentance because it comes from sorrow over sin. Repentance is then the taking of that sorrow and acting upon it. It is the ongoing turning from sin and turning to Christ. But we get this confused. Let me use this as an example. If I tell a lie, and I am convicted about my lie, and I confess that lie to God, asking Him for forgiveness, that's right. That ought to be done. But if I say, yeah, I told a lie, and I repented to God for it this morning, hear how that's, that's off. It's missing the mark. I have confessed. And that's right and good. That is commanded and instructed of me. And now I need to live in repentance. The Christian life is repenting and trusting in Christ because repentance is ongoing. We confess sin and live in repentance, constantly turning from desires for sin and to desires to honor the Lord, to honor Christ. But then you may have the question, okay, but what happens later on if I commit that same particular sin again? I've been living in repentance. My delight in Christ has been greater than my desire for that sin when I'm tempted to lie again. I find myself resisting it because I love to walk in obedience to the Lord I love resting in the salvation that is mine in Christ. But, but then I fall again. Maybe it's three days, maybe it's three weeks, three months, three years, three minutes. You do the same thing. Well, what do you do? You confess your sin. You own it. And turn back to living in repentance. Continue as you were, delighting in Christ and hating your sin. 
This is our first sign that Israel is in a much different place spiritually than they were in chapter 4. There they thought that they could use God however they wanted to to get whatever it was that they wanted. He was their pawn and he was going to serve them. They've been humbled over the course of 20 years. And so we should see their affliction under Philistine control as a divine mercy of God. That's not to say that in every instance where the people of God suffer, that it is a direct result or consequence of a specific sin or sins that you or I have committed. But we do also see in the Scriptures that there are times where we are given over to the consequences of sin that we may learn not to sin. And this is a mercy, a divine mercy of God. After being given over to the consequences of their sin, the Israelites, they're turning back. Now they don't seek to manipulate God. They recognize their guilt, and they turn back to Him. And so Samuel responds to their obedience by gathering the nation at Mizpah. Now, Mizpah, it served as an important gathering place for the nation. We hear about it in Judges chapter 20 when this egregious sin has been committed in the Benjaminite town of Gebeah, uh, the nation gathers at Mizpah to learn what has gone on and what ought to be done uh, with the town of Gebeah. It's also in just a few chapters where Saul is going to be declared king, and that's going to happen in 1 Samuel 10. Here, Samuel gathers the nation to lead them in covenant renewal, and to pray for them. He gathers them that he may intercede for them, that he may stand in the gap praying to God on their behalf. And we also read that he judges them. And now when we hear that, don't think legal. Don't have the legal connotation with it as if he's just coming to handle their legal disputes. The context shows us that isn't what is happening. This is covenant renewal. He is instructing them in righteousness. If they are turning again to the Lord, they need to be reminded of what it actually means to live as his people. What did the covenant require of you? Samuel comes and says, I'm going to teach you that. I'm going to direct you in that as I pray to God on your behalf. That's what's happening at Mizpah. And then those stinking Philistines show up and wreck the party. And so that leads us into the second section of the text, where Samuel intercedes for Israel. So the Philistines, they hear about Israel's national gathering, and as you can imagine, they don't like it. So they gather together, they come out against Israel, they clearly sense in what Israel is doing. In their minds, there is some sort of rebellion that is taking place here, and they don't want that. Can't have that. They have to keep Israel under their thumb, and so they're coming out to put them back down. But this, too, is an interesting reversal of where we last saw the Philistines. They thought that they had defeated the God of Israel, only to be proven dead wrong and to recognize it. They made guilt offerings to the God of Israel, and they sent the ark away. And everything that they did was prompted of their knowledge of what happened to Pharaoh when the Egyptians refused to submit to God. But now 20 years have passed, and their memories are short. So here they come to battle the Israelites, to 
keep them under their thumb. And the Israelites are afraid. They're afraid of the Philistines. But in this moment, we see their ongoing repentance. They've been in this spot before, facing the Philistines, desperate for help. That was their position in chapter 4. But this time, this time they don't act as if the Lord serves them. This time they, they plead with Samuel. They don't ignore him like they did last time. They ask him to continue praying for them, asking that the Lord would save them from their enemies. They are trusting that the Lord will do as Samuel has told them, that the Lord has said he will do back in verse 3. Look there again. What does it say? Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The lesson of chapter 4 has come home for Israel. The Lord is no man's pawn. They serve him, not the other way around. He is the Lord, and he alone is worthy of adoration and devotion. They are utterly dependent on him. They are hopeless without him. I wonder if that lesson has come home for us. It's the kindness of God that has brought them to this place. We have to understand that about their position. True repentance is not something that we just muster up within ourselves that then God is coerced into responding to. Oh, look, it's there. Okay, now I'll, now I'll act. Repentance is a gift from God. Write down Acts 11.48 and 2 Timothy 2.25. Acts 11.48 and 2 Timothy 2.25. Check me. See if what I say is true. And you will find it there. Both texts speak of the Lord granting repentance. Israel has been humbled. A kindness of God that has brought them to repentance. And in so doing, he has prepared them to receive his mercy. Here we need to stop and remind ourselves of the question that was raised at the end of chapter 6. Do you remember what they said? After the Lord struck down 70 men in Beth Shemesh, they said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The answer is no one. The whole chapter gave evidence to that. Even backing up to chapter 5 gave evidence to that. Dagon couldn't stand, fell on his face, had his head cut off. The wicked Philistines could not. They had to send the ark away before they all died. The faithless men of Beth Shemesh, they could not. They had to send the ark away because the Lord had started killing them for their faithlessness. Man in our sin cannot stand before a holy God. We need someone to stand before God on our behalf. Israel recognizes that in 1 Samuel 7-8. to They turn to Samuel. 
We need you, Samuel, the one whom God has raised up as a prophet and put his words in your mouth. We need you to intercede for us. We need you to go before the Lord in prayer on our behalf. Petition him for us and don't stop. And this is another way in which Samuel is like Moses. Moses was an intercessor for the people before God. Let's back up just a second and let me define intercessor, right? We probably need that. We do need that. An intercessor is someone who intervenes on behalf of another, a go-between between two parties. That's what Moses did for Israel. Remember what happened at Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and he's gone for a minute, like a 40-day minute. And the people at the base of the mountain are sitting down there going, Okay, I don't think he's coming back. Aaron, we need you to do something for us. We need you to make a god, fashion it for us so that we can worship it, so that we know who to worship for bringing us out of Egypt. And so Aaron does. He uh, makes the golden calf. Well, the Lord doesn't miss anything. He knows, and he tells Moses, Moses, you need to go down. Because I'm going to kill all of them, and I'm going to start over with you. And what does Moses do in that moment? All right. Oh, sounds good. They've been a pain in the neck so far. Seems, seems right with me. No, he doesn't. He pleaded with God to show mercy to the people who had sinned terribly against the Lord. And the Lord worked through Moses' pleadings for his people to spare them from his wrath, showing that what does sinful man need? An intercessor, a go-between, someone who appeals to God on our behalf. And Moses, when he served this role for Israel in this moment and ongoing, his appeal was based on the promises of God to his people. Moses, in that moment, appeals to the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in his plea for mercy for the people. Well, here Samuel takes up that role. He pleads with the Lord on behalf of the people for mercy, and we've already seen the basis for this appeal all the way back in verse 4. He tells them, if they turn back to God, God will deliver them from their enemies. So Samuel's appeal is rooted in God's promises to his people. We are turning to you. Deliver us from the Philistines. But notice what he does. He takes a lamb and offers it up as a whole burnt offering. And jot down Leviticus 1. Leviticus 1 tells us that the burnt offering was to atone for sins. So it's only after blood is shed to cover the sins of the people that Samuel cries out to the Lord on behalf of the people. And so in this way, we see that Samuel is acting like a priest. In fact, this whole scene beginning in verse 6 mirrors the Day of Atonement. Israel has gathered as a nation to mourn their sins and recommit themselves to the Lord. Just like on the Day of Atonement when they would gather to mourn their sins, when their sins would be placed on the, the animals that were being offered up, one whose blood was spilled, one who was sent out into the wilderness. So they mourned their sin and recommitted themselves to the Lord. Here, 
Like on that day, they afflicted themselves. It was another marker of the Day of Atonement, was afflicting themselves. They fast, they refrain from water. That's what the pouring out of the water meant. It was not, it was a, we're pouring this out, recognizing our dependence on you and you only. And so like on that day, Samuel, through the blood of the Lamb, has offered up the sacrifice for the people's sins. And so in this way, we see that he's functioning like Aaron. And the psalmist actually picks up on this in Psalm 99.6, where it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, they called to the Lord, and he answered them. And we read that the Lord responds to the prayers of the one who is interceding for his people. The Philistines draw near, and the Lord thunders against them. And this actually recalls Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2, where she prayed that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So what happens here? The Lord thunders, the Philistines panic, the men of Israel rally, and they rout them. And the Lord's subduing of his enemies is complete. We see in verse 13 that all the days of Samuel, that the Lord's hand was against the Philistines. They don't come into the land again during Samuel's time. In fact, the Israelites regain land that had previously been taken away from them. There's also peace between them and the Amorites. The Amorites looking at Israel going, I don't want that smoke. I don't want no part of a nation who just took down the guys who were the big bad bully on the block. I don't want none of that. We're good. We're good friends. Now, over the last few chapters, we've seen shadows and explicit references to the Exodus. Well, now we're seeing shadows of the conquest. In the conquest, Israel put their trust in the Lord to go out and fight their battles, and He delivered them into the land, giving them rest. Here, Israel puts their trust in God to fight their battles, and He gives them rest in the land. And so to commemorate the Lord's victory, Samuel sets up a stone that he calls Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help, which helps us understand Samuel's comment. It's a reminder for them that the Lord has been and will be their help. They depend on His mercy. And any time they saw this stone, they were to remember that. But this stone also serves to highlight the complete reversal of chapter 4. Do you remember where they gathered to battle the Philistines at Aphek? Or when the Philistines gathered at Aphek? They gathered at Ebenezer. Now, we don't know if where this stone is placed, if it was the same place as the same Ebenezer as where they had gathered it back in chapter 4, but it's clearly recalling and calling us back to that moment. There you sought to use the Lord, and He defeated you. Here He was merciful. He forgave you, and He delivered you. This text drips of the grace and the mercy of God to repentant sinners. Grace and mercy to bring Israel to repentance. Grace and mercy to forgive their sins. Grace and mercy to deliver them from their enemies. And yet there is more 
in the last few verses. So the last section. Samuel leads Israel in continued devotion to the Lord. We might come to verses 15 and 17 and just be like, ah, it's just throwaway, it's just a summary. Look, Samuel goes around, he's judging, he judges here, and he judges here, and he judges here, then he comes back home and he judges some more. Great, cool, let's, let's move on to chapter 8. But there is something important to see. Yes, it is a summary of his ministry among the people. He would travel in a circuit to instruct Israel in worship and service to the Lord. Remember, that's what his role as judge was. Not just a settler of legal disputes, but he was one who led the people in worship to the Lord, in worship of the Lord. And so we see also at the end of verse 17 that that was his own aim, that it was to worship the Lord. That's the point of the detail about the altar. Samuel was a man who worshipped the Lord and who led the people to do the same. But these details about Samuel also serve as an even further reversal of the events of chapter 4. Chapter 4 didn't end after Israel lost a battle and the ark was captured and carried off. The Lord also judged the house of Eli. The corrupt priest, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, they all died. These men had not led the nation to worship and serve the Lord. Instead, they were taking advantage of the people and in so doing were actually preventing the worship of God. But all along, as we're learning about their wickedness, we're being given glimpses of the boy Samuel, one who is growing in favor with God. And man, now we see that the Lord in Samuel has given the people someone who will lead them in righteousness. This too is a grace and mercy of the Lord to his repentant people. Not only has he delivered them from external enemies, He's delivered them from the enemies within their own people, the corrupt priests. And in so doing, the Lord has shown that the claim that the glory had departed was greatly exaggerated. The Lord was continuing to work in and among His people. But we also see in this that Samuel, in his role as judge, was acting kingly. The, the king had many responsibilities, but chief among them was to lead the nation in the worship of God. And we read in Deuteronomy 17 that one of the king's responsibilities was to take a copy of the law, to write it down for himself, and to make sure that he lived by it all the days of his life. And so we, what we know about the king was that the king was to set the course for the nation by being first devoted to God himself, and then to then ensure that the nation was devoted to the Lord, that the nation was living in devotion to God as Lord. Samuel's ministry point to the way that he functioned as a prototype of the king, a national figure in Israel whom the whole nation knew and was led by to worship and serve God. So, Samuel was a prophet 
who led them to know the word of the Lord. He functioned as a priest in his intercession for the people, offering up an atoning sacrifice and praying for them. He functioned like a king who led the people in worship and service to the Lord. And in all of this, he foreshadows Christ. It's Jesus is the better Samuel. He is the better prophet. He not only spoke the words that the Father gave him, he is the Word made flesh, God incarnate. Our sinfulness is revealed in the light of his own perfect righteousness and in his teaching. And he leads his people in repentance by his Spirit who convicts and conforms his people to his likeness, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to shape the people of God, to lead us to worship and serve him. Jesus is the true priest, the one who not only makes the sacrifice to atone for sins, but is himself that sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who was slain and yet lives. He's the true king who not only leads us in devotion to God, but makes it possible. He rescues us from our enemies, from sin and death, through his own death as our substitute. And by the Spirit, he makes us a new creation, able to know God and worship God as he works out salvation in us. And so as such, Jesus is the better intercessor. 1 Samuel 7 reminds us that God intends for his people to draw near to him through another. Samuel served that role for Israel in our text, but Christ serves that role for us, and he is the one that we truly need. The author of Hebrews speaks of this in a few different places. In Hebrews 9.24, we read, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How has he done this? Well, Hebrews 9, 12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And as such, Hebrews seven twenty five, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He who was and is the perfect righteousness of God in the flesh on the merit of his own blood spilled for sins has been seated at the right hand of the Father. There he serves as our advocate as our intercessor. He prays on our behalf, appealing to the Father for us. Consider Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn the people of God? No one. Christ is at his right hand interceding for us. 
His intercession, then too we must see, is rooted in the promises of God to save a people for himself. Let that sink in. We're all encouraged when a fellow follower of Christ, another pilgrim making their way in exile through this world onto that blessed shore, the city which we are longing for, we're encouraged when they tell us that they're praying for us. That encourages us. It gives us confidence to press on in obedience to the Lord. How much more should we be encouraged by knowing that Christ, our Lord, the sinless Son of God, is doing that very thing in the presence of the Father? The one who covers you in His righteousness pleads your cause. But I want to be clear. If you are not trusting Christ for salvation, you have no intercessor before God. You stand on your own, and this is a terrible place to be. In our sinfulness, we're not able to stand before a holy God. You need an intercessor. You need Christ. Repent and trust in His death for sins and resurrection from the dead for your salvation. If you are in Christ and have Him as your intercessor... Two things that this must lead us to. The first, confess your sins. Consider 1 John 1, 9 and also verse 2, 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Christ's intercession for us should give us all the confidence in the world to confess our sins. His resurrection is the evidence that His death was sufficient to pay for our sins. He was without sin, and so death had no claim on Him. And so in Him, our sins have been fully dealt with, every last one. And He's seated in the heavenly places to plead on our behalf. There are many things that keep us from confessing our sin. Pride. Pride is one. We don't like to admit when we're in the wrong. And so we try to explain away our sin. Yeah, but you don't know what they said to me. You, listen, you weren't there. You didn't see what they did to me. I was hungry. I was tired. I hadn't been sleeping good. You know, that's, that's why I did what I did. That's poppycock. It is foolish to refrain from confessing our sins in light of Christ's pleas for His people. Don't seek to justify yourself. Confess your sin. Guilt is another. It keeps us from confessing sin. We feel guilty because of our continued struggle with a particular sin. Or perhaps we feel like the sin that we have walked into, that we have committed, is so egregious that the Lord simply could not forgive it. If that's you, if you're there, hear me. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover all our sins. And He is our advocate before the Father when we do sin. Don't be buried in your guilt. Turn to Christ and rest 
in the forgiveness available in him. Second thing this leads us to, and I'll close. Put away your sins. We read Hebrews 4 earlier in the service. Christ not only suffered for our sins, but was tempted and tried in every way that we are. He who is without sin knows our struggle with sin and is sympathetic towards us. In him we have one who pleads with the Father for our strength and perseverance against temptations to sin. We see that he does this because he does it in John 17, where he prays that the Father would sanctify his disciples in the truth. And so we know that Christ, as our intercessor, is praying for us to continue in faith until the end because it's the very thing that is recorded for us in John 17 that he does. Praying that his people would make it. So we have no excuse for our laziness in putting away sins. Again, we are prone to making all sorts of excuses for putting away sin. Repentance can make you uncomfortable. If you've told a lie, part of walking in repentance is going to be confessing your lie to the person that you lied to. Repentance can inconvenience you. It may leave you vulnerable, in a vulnerable place. If you lie about something at work to a superior and owning up to it requires you own up to your superior about your lie, it may cost you your job. And because of this, we're tempted to put off dealing with our sins. Uh, Maybe later. Uh, That's too much. I can't do that. But the prayers of Christ are effective because they are always in lockstep with the Father's will. Christ prays his prayers for his people will lead to our sanctification. We will be putting away sin as he prays for the Father to give us aid, aid which comes through the Spirit. If you are hemming and hawing about doing what is necessary to put away sin, it raises the question of if Christ is your intercessor. Are you putting off dealing with sin? Why? You have an advocate in heaven pleading for you. Rest in the strength he supplies and turn to God in repentance.